Hey listeners, before this week's episode, I wanted to introduce you to a friend of mine, Ross Baum. Ross is a Richard Rodgers award-winning musical theater and pop music composer whose first musical, Gun and Powder, premiered at the Signature Theater last winter. He's also a music producer and member of the vocal group Range. And if that wasn't enough, Ross is also a super talented voice teacher. And in my opinion, taking voice lessons from someone who's in the business and actively part of the industry is super important. You're learning and you're networking right from someone who you could find yourself auditioning for. Here's a little clip of a recent conversation I had with Ross. Thank you for having me. I love the breakdown. <laughs> Over the years, I have worked as a performer, a musical theater composer, pop songwriter, music director, vocal arranger, music producer of a, a vocal group called Range, and I'm also a trained voice teacher. And so a lesson with me will typically encompass, you know, a combination of all of those aspects as they relate to your voice. We'll typically work technique and exercise all the registers of your voice, but then we'll also talk about musicianship and interpretation and acting and even song structure and how to be expressive and accurate and soulful with your voice. And so I'm currently on faculty at Syracuse University, and I also teach privately over Zoom or in person in New York City. Everything is really tailored to the individual, and so I really just try to gain an understanding of each student as their own creative artist. What's the kind of music you're passion passionate about? What's the kind of art that you want to be making? What's the kind of music that you want to be singing? Um, and really just help you achieve your individual goals in a very positive and relaxed and encouraging yet rigorous setting. Ross is offering our listeners an exclusive deal. If you mention the Breakdown Podcast when booking, you get 25% off your first voice lesson. That's incredible. For more info and to sign up, visit rossbaummusic.com. All right, listeners, on to the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Broadway actor Erica Henningsen. Erica's Broadway credits include Fantine and Les Mis, Katie in the original cast of Mean Girls, for which she received an Outer Critics Circle nomination, and Flying Over Sunset at Lincoln Center. Other credits include Showboat with the New York Philharmonic, Diner, the Cheryl Crow musical at the Signature Theater, Dear World with the York Theater, South Pacific, and Mamma Mia at PCLO, and so much more. Erica is also a passionate arts advocate, activist, and teacher. Listeners, I can't tell you how wonderful Erica is, obviously both on stage and off, and I'm so thrilled to be sharing our recent chat because I think it really gets to the heart of what the podcast is really all about. Now, success came very fast for Erica, and I wanted to know how and why. Obviously, she's super talented and she's kind and intelligent, but I wanted to know if there was something she did or something she learned. Maybe it could help the rest of us. I was floored to learn about the mindset and the realizations that Erica was having at such an early age in this business. Some of the lessons she talks about take some of us years to figure out and learn if we ever actually do figure them out. Of course, we talk all about the Mean Girls audition process, and it's really an incredible story, and unlike any audition process I've ever heard before. No audition story is the same, and this one is certainly no exception. Something that stands out to me about our chat is when we talk about how people tell you to not want the job so bad because people behind the table will be able to tell and how she could never do that. If she's accepting the appointment and going to an audition, of course she wants the job, but she talks about how there's different levels of wanting the job and how it's possible to fully invest, prepare for an audition and get memorized, but understand that this one job will not make or break your career and there will always be other auditions. I think this is huge. Listeners, I love chatting with actors like Erica on the podcast because I think it complements all the other episodes we have with casting directors and directors and producers because you can start to see the whole picture and where we fit into the business, whether you're pursuing a career on stage or behind the scenes. Remember, if you like what you hear, please take a second and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and spread the word. Tell your friends, screenshot your favorite episode, and let us know you're listening. All right, listeners, without further ado, my conversation with the brilliant, hilarious, and incredibly kind Erica Henningsen.
Erica, I'm so grateful to be chatting with you and to be seeing you and to be like catching up and reconnecting with you. It's been a minute. We connected in a Bob Krakauer class, which I'm totally going to drop that name on the podcast because he is an incredible, incredible on-camera teacher. And, you know, I know we were like, you know, partners in that class and like getting a lot out of it. And right. um, so I'm so happy to be seeing you and, and talking to you again during this crazy year that we I are know. having. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I love it. Totally. You, I'm so happy to talk to you. You know, I love to like supplement conversations with casting directors and artistic directors and, you know, that side of the business with the perspective of actors to get kind of the full picture of what's going on. Also mm -hmm. for younger actors or actors that are coming out of college who a lot of them are listening to the podcast, you know, just to get an idea of of what it can be like and what it can be like coming out of, you know, coming out of school and the business and the industry. And I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, from the outside, right. you got success very fast after getting out of school and you went to University of Michigan, right? For musical uh -huh. theater. Yes. And so exciting. You did Les Mis. I think this is right that you were the youngest person to ever play Fantine on Broadway. Is that right? I was, and I know that for a fact because my mother spent a day Google fact checking. That. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was that was something that she did during this year of quarantine because I think she was running out of things to do just like the rest of us. <laughs> wow, amazing! Is your mom um, has she ever been in the business or into theater, or are you her kind of entrance to that? Yeah, not at all. My family is super supportive of the arts, but was not in any capacity involved. Like, there's no connection in any anywhere in my family. Um, but it was really interesting because I do think that her love of it has grown seeing that obviously her youngest daughter is living in New York City and moved here. And though my sister lives in New York as well, I think she was so happy to see that I found a community here. I think anybody who's part of the theater community finds a family. So I think for her, it's less about seeing the end product or end result of the things that I've been in. And I think it's just the joy of knowing her daughter found her her people, so to speak. Absolutely. I feel like that's so much a part of why so many of us move to the move to New yeah. York or find our friends or, you know, our chosen family or, you know, it's it's a very specific, awesome community of people to to be a part of. So exactly. I totally get that. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess my really my first question is you came out of school, you did lame is, and then you know, I'm just like jumping around to the highlights. And then Diner. Diner was, okay, so I did a production of Diner out of town in DC first. Oh, okay. And then I got Les Mis while I, right when I finished that contract. And we'll sort of talk about that. Yeah. Sure. And then I did another production of Diner. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> talk about that. And then jump into the next highlight, which many things in between that I'm sure we'll, we'll chat about. But um, yeah. That was sort of the Mean Girls era began after that. Right. And Mean Girls. And then a year ago when all this stopped, you were doing Flying Over Sunset. Yes. Yes. We Incredible. had done preview. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And <laughs> so I guess, you know, you got out of school and, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Like I understand that there are definitely some probably harder things that happened along the way or things you didn't yeah. get that you wanted. But why do you think looking back on it now, maybe with some work under under your belt and just being a little bit older and knowing a little bit more about this business, you know, the bad question is what was the secret? You know, there's, there's not a secret, but what do you think uh, you're wildly talented, you know, incredibly kind person, but I just wonder like, you know, maybe looking at some of your friends that maybe had a similar trajectory or right. just what, what was it? Like, what did you, what happened? Yeah. What happened? Like, how did it happen? You know, I, it's so interesting because I was thinking about this recently because I was kind of tracking the, the three really big things that I've gotten to do. One was sort of how I got my equity card, which was this production of Diner with Cheryl Crow, Kathy Marshall, Barry Levinson. And then I got to do Les Mis in the revival cast. And then I got to do a couple years later, I got to do the, the original Broadway company, Mean Girls. And when I actually think about all those audition experiences, I went in really feeling like I had nothing to lose because I either thought I had either already been rejected from the project, which was the case for Les Mis and Mean Girls, um, or I just thought 
or I just thought this is such a stretch or I can't believe I'm even just getting to be in this room that I felt like there was no part of me that went in thinking I am the perfect person for this. All I can do, because we all know there's multiple perfect people for parts. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a puzzle and maybe you're the puzzle piece for that particular permutation of it. Mm -hmm. But I think I went in, in the case of Les Mis, I had gone in for Cosette so many times had been rejected. So then when I was called in for Fontaine, I thought, well, this ought to be good. And um, for Mean Girls, I had gone in for the lab and gotten to the bitter end of that audition process and was rejected from that. So then when it came back around for the Broadway production, I'd already been rejected from Mean Girls once. Wow. And so I do think there was a little bit less fear and a little bit less um, of an idea that I had to fit into some type of box because I just thought if they're calling me back in for each of these projects after the rejection that I felt, they must like something I'm doing and I don't even really know what that is. So I just have to show up and authentically give life to the text. I'm a very um, text-based actor. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's, I wouldn't say that's like my secret. I think that's the case for a lot of people. Um, but I do think that as soon as I stop thinking about performing, that's usually when things start to happen in the room in a positive way. I love that because I think it's, and actually I kind of, this clicked a little bit with me for Bob, with Bob Krakauer actually, but was, was what is our job going into that audition room? And I think so many people, especially early or, anytime in the business feel like we need to go in and like prove ourselves or show how talented we are or show and perform instead of actually realizing like we're there as an interpreter of the text and the material. And so that's exactly what you're saying is like, it's, it's about the material and like, how can I, you know, be an artist and interpret the material as opposed to how do I, you know, go in then and start performing, you know, which we're all guilty of, but there are those certain roles and projects that just fit and I love that, you know, you were kind of saying that you didn't put the pressure on yourself. You know, sometimes you go into those auditions and the pressure to deliver is is more. Um, and, yeah. and especially for these earlier things, you didn't, you know, you didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. I remember going in and I, I sort of have learned not only from the things that I got, but also the things that I didn't get that I was close to. Um, because looking back, I went in for Frozen for months and i remember putting so much pressure on myself for that and just thinking like i am this i am this girl it must be me and there was such rigidness in my performance because i was Mm. it that way because in my head i thought there's one way to do this and i know what it is and i'm gonna do that and that's that's the thing and it kind of left no room to play And it also just caused me to seize up when it came time to actually share my work because I just was coming at it from the wrong angle. Mm -hmm. So I learned just as much from what I get versus what I don't. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, I think that's huge too. You know, we spend so much on an audition, you know, time and money sometimes if we're coaching on something, you know, Mm -hmm. that sometimes it feels like, what did I do it for? You know, if you don't get the job or you don't get a callback, but I think thinking of it, like you just said, you know, you get something out of it. Like every audition, I'm like, I just need to get something out of it or learn something. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you're like, I was great and I couldn't have done anything different, but that's, you know, but yeah, I mean, I think getting something out of it, it it like, it keeps us going. You know what I mean? There has to be something that, you know, this is just occurring to me now and we're kind of jumping a little bit, but you know, we'll go back on time. Now three Broadway shows and a bunch of other incredible work in uh, well, let's just say after Mean Girls, because like, after, you know, flying over sunset that, you know, that kind of stopped, unfortunately. But did you, once you were established and people knew who you were in this business and you did this massive, one of the biggest commercial, incredible musicals with an incredible team, when you started auditioning again after Mean Girls or during Mean Girls, was there, did you put a pressure on yourself? Did you feel pressure? Did you not? Because now people are expecting something, yeah. you know, um, what was that? like for you or did you not feel that no i felt it immensely and i feel it and i still feel it because things have sort of shut down so i feel like i kind of lost a whole year of working through that pressure and that 
that self-placed projection, because nobody is saying this to me, but this projection that I feel now when I self-tape or when I do ultimately get to walk into a room of not only this has to be of a certain caliber, but also I have to change the way that they think about me. Because in my head, whether this is true or not, I assume the person behind the table or behind the camera is thinking, oh, that's the girl who does this, or that's the girl who does that. And as much as I love Mean Girls and as much as I love and continue to love that character, that is a version of me that I look forward to growing out of. Um, Not just because she's a 16 year old high schooler, but because I think the massive commercialness of that musical asked for a certain type of performance. And my fear and, and what I've felt auditioning has been the idea that I I worry that people will underestimate that I can do anything else. And I also underestimate um, and sometimes wonder if I can do anything else. Um, And I'm trying to push myself to not just believe it, but to figure out ways to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was, you know, there were discussions when I was leaving Mean Girls of other projects that I was maybe interested in and having to actively decide to walk away from a project because it was a continuation of what I was already known for. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, it's hard because it's really easy to stay comfortable. <laughs> um, and you want to work and get a paycheck and, and you know, you all those work. things. Yes, exactly. So I, I'm really curious to see, not only because I think all of our audition skills have maybe atrophied a bit during this time, <laughs> yep, yep. But, but also going in and, and hoping that I can quiet that voice in my head that's like, all you have to do is just show up and share something. You don't have to, you don't have to like fight against what you are because you think it's this odd combo of you still have to bring yourself to the character and you still have to bring your truth to it. But also you can't go in and project onto these people that they're expecting you to fail simply because it's a play or it's more of a dramatic piece and they mm-hmm. know you from a musical comedy which that is something I'm continually working through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that we will always be trying, you know, as we go age into different things and wanting, you know, different, different things as artists, wanting to be challenged in different ways. And, and also as the world changes, you know, the projects we pick and we are in such a social unrest time right now that goes into, you know, the projects we pick. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you're talking about of picking those projects and really finding the right thing to work on and how you collaborate with your representation on that. And the, and kind of, it's a tricky, interesting personal balance, but I just wonder if, do you have an agent and a manager and you do have a manager, right? I do. I have a manager. Um, Her name is Michelle Cottrell and I started working with her about two years ago. And it's funny you ask that because we've actually had in this year, even as things have been shut down, my uh, agent is Stuart Talent and sort of my person there is Tim Marshall, who I've been with since I moved to the city. And the the three of us together, not only when Mean Girls closed, but also as we face maybe theater and television reopening, have started to have the conversations of what is beneficial to do as an artist and also what are the stories that I am compelled to tell and able to tell. I think there are stories that maybe three years prior, I would have thought, yes, send me on in. And I think now we're approaching sort of a reckoning in our field and I think many fields that there are stories that are maybe somebody else's to tell. Mm -hmm. And, um, It will be interesting, I think, when I face that moment, especially coming off of a year of unemployment and and not and not doing the thing that we love. But I think it comes from a place of trusting that there is enough to go around and that this is not a sprint. And I think I realized that I, I have to say when Flying Over Sunset was shut down, I think we were all devastated. But I realized in the quiet after that final first (laughs) preview performance that I was really burnt out. And that in my head, I had jumped from Mean Girls to Flying Over Sunset, not just because I was really excited about the project and I'm excited for people to see it, but because I thought if I don't do something right away, I will lose relevance. 
and I have to stay relevant because then I will just be the girl who did that one commercial musical and no one will hear from me again. Mm -hmm. And I understand that line of thinking. I understand why I had that line of thinking. But after a whole year of all of us being at that and surviving it, I think what I'm hoping I can hold on to from this time is the idea that it is a marathon and having longevity in the field and the people that I admire who have been in this field for upwards of three, four decades, they have periods of um, growth that we don't see that is not on a television screen in a theater eight shows a week. And that's sort of what I am leaning towards as we re-enter is making sure that I don't jump at just anything because I feel like gotta get back in the ring. <laughs> um, <laughs> and who knows if I'll even have that option, but I, I really do think that my concept of being an artist has expanded as time has slowed this year. Mm-hmm. And I realized like there is room to pause and figure out what do you want to put your time into? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not how I thought before, which was just, I have to go, I have to get the next thing, I have to get the next thing, I have to beat everyone in a race that literally doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's competing against, we're competing against ourselves, right? Like yes. it's hard to look to your left and to your right, and yet we all do it. But um, I think hearing from people like you, that mm-hmm. that mindset and that that's like really what's important as opposed to trying to prove yourself or show people. Um, I just think the more we hear it from people like you, the more we can actually start to like adopt that because I think it's, I think it's wildly important. It's also important for your, to have longevity in this business. Like you don't want to burn out. You also like want to pick projects that are important and that can lead to something. And, um, and yeah, you're right. We look at these like men and women that are, you know, decades in this business and, They've also had their lives. They've gotten married. They've had children. They've like, ha- you know, lived lives as well as these careers. Exactly. And, you know, I think that's also important too, because that's inevitably what makes us good at what we do is like living those life, living those lives. Yes. So yeah, it's not something that can be neglected. Not at all. And I'm so, I think of these kids who are graduating this year, and especially after a really difficult senior year, if they're in musical theater programs and and moving to New York, that I'm sure, and I know I was too, I knew we were all just chomping at the bit when we moved here. But I think if, if I have any advice for any of them, is that like, there's no dictated pace for success. There's no time marker that you have to reach in order to make it as an actor for your professional career there just mm-hmm. isn't because so many people i admire you had no idea who they were until they were 35 um or you're hearing about them now as they're like mothers of multiple children so i just i just caution that to all people if you were listening <laughs> young seniors that like there's really no um there is no expiration date on on when you on your career yeah <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's important to realize now when we're all feeling like, oh, time's going by, but it's like, you know what, there will be other things and we are aging into the things that will be be better for us and, you know, Mm -hmm. and everything. So I want to, I want to go back to the beginning again, because we kind of like, so interesting hearing about all this, but I want to hear about the beginning. You know, we were just talking about getting out of school. Talk to me about graduating. I know your school does a very um, highly attended showcase. So bring me kind of like from ending school. How did you get your agent? Is it the agent you have now? And then bring that, bring me into like the beginning of like the Les Mis auditions and stuff. Yes. I love that. Um, So I moved to New York in 2014 in May and we had a showcase a showcase if people don't know who are listening is where your graduating class does a small performance for casting directors, um, agents, industry professionals who are sort of conducive to potentially getting a job. It's certainly not guaranteed, but it is definitely a really helpful jumping off platform for young people entering the city as performers. Mm -hmm. I did the showcase. We did it twice. I think there was a party afterwards. And then we all kind of went our separate ways because we knew that the next morning, um, I believe Rachel Hoffman, my like incredible 
mentor and especially just a champion. And I'm so grateful to her. I think she emailed every person who they heard back from. And I was pretty good about really only talking about it with my close friends. But I I think that oftentimes the next morning, if, if a person is showcasing, it can vary from hearing from 20 different agents to three. I want to share on this that I only heard from three. <laughs> and I was so grateful. And all you need is not just as to say that, all you need is one. You just mm-hmm. need one person who thinks you rock and wants to help you succeed. But I, so I heard from three three agencies um, that uh, kind of ran the gamut from larger to really small boutique ones. And I ended up signing with Stuart Talent, who I'm still awesome. with to this day. Wonderful. Yes. They're great. They're just wonderful. And I just felt so... Um, I just remember going to the meeting and not only feeling excited to meet them, but that they were excited to talk to me. And I remember feeling like I didn't have to put on a show and I, and that I was clearly being asked questions about what I wanted to do, but it was from a place of how can we best serve you as opposed to prove to us that you know what you're doing in this field. Because Mm. I really think when you're 21, I moved thinking I was one thing and over the course of two years that that changed. So I signed with Stuart Talent. I also got a job babysitting and working at Equinox at Columbus Circle. Love the Equinox at Columbus <laughs> Circle. I was the front desk girl. I was the worst person. I did the 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. shift so that I could go um, shower and then audition in the afternoon. And it was kind of a great, great job. And then I obviously babysat um, on, on weekends. And I just auditioned a ton at the beginning. I auditioned for a lot of replacements, a lot of, um, I think I was auditioning for like to replace Glinda for a while. And at that point, I feel like my goal was not to get a job. It was just to make sure I was showing up and doing good work and making a name for myself of, yeah. (laughs) That's huge, Erica. I I mean, I wish I had that hindsight when I was 21, (laughs) but um, it's really cool that you had that, that you had that mentality. And I, and I have to say, I think it was just a piece of advice that I got from one of my mentors who was an alumni of um, Michigan, who just said, you know, you may get a job, but at the end of the day, the goal is to just ensure that the casting directors know they can trust you so that they bring you in for when it's the right job. Um, and that to me is the most important thing of the first year. It's not necessarily getting the thing. It's just always being well-prepared, kind, having some opinion of the text, um, Mm -hmm. I don't think I was brave enough to really go in and be like, I'm going to give you a Glinda you've never seen before. (laughs) Like I just, I've never, I I really wasn't brave enough to do that yet. And um, honestly, that has been a trajectory in my audition process because for a long time I was just trying to do what I had seen in performances, what I'd seen on YouTube. I remember I have to share this because it's so embarrassing. Please. But, But I think people make this mistake is that I was going in to replace Carol King and I went, got myself a ticket to the show and I turned my voice memo recording on when Jesse Mueller was giving a monologue because I was like, okay, I'll just, I just want to make sure I do it right. And I'm pretty sure I gave the most beautiful impression of a Jesse Mueller performance <laughs> of Carol King possible at my audition. And of course heard nothing because I just, I learned that year that yes, I was doing good work, but I was just doing my version of somebody else's work, which we can talk about that sort of transition, figuring that out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's also, that's also huge. And that's also to me, like, you know, kind of what we started talking about what, you know, how did it happen so fast for you in the beginning? You're, you were having all these amazing revelations that I think takes a lot of people a long time to figure out or to hear. And I think that's really cool that you started thinking that way in the beginning. And I'm so happy that you're sharing it with us. So hopefully other people are having those, you know, that kind of those realizations. 
because the first thing that I actually got feedback on was something that there was no archetype to follow because it was Diner, which was a movie and it was being turned into a musical. Nobody had done it before or maybe there had been labs, but I hadn't seen them. And so really all I could walk in with was my interpretation of the text not something I'd seen on YouTube, not something I'd heard on a cast recording. Mm -hmm. That's the job that got me my equity card and was sort of my first professional contract as a New York theater performer. That's a huge job to get for your first job. You know, you're working on a new musical, like that's kind of the dream. Yes, it was the absolute dream. And it was just so the cast was amazing. Um, the the creative team was amazing. And we got to do it in DC, which like to this day, the Signature Theater is one of my all-time favorite places to work. I just loved it there. But that was about a year and a half. I'd been in the city for about a year and a half when I got that. And a lot of that had just been spent auditioning, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> aka copying the people who'd already done it on Broadway. <laughs> yeah. um, and working and getting good, good feedback, being prepared, but not still not really bringing myself to anything. Um, and, and diner was the first thing that I felt like I really just brought myself to it because I didn't know what else to bring. There wasn't an archetype that I could follow. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of, I guess that's phase one of my time in New York. And then diner sort of started the next phase. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So diner finishes in DC, in DC, right? Mm-hmm. And then, okay, and then what? And then how long after does Les Mis happen? Um, Les Mis happened, I was auditioning for Cosette while I was um, doing Diner. I was sending in tapes and getting- For the Broadway, for that production. For that production, yes, for the Broadway production. um, Because the year one cast was, I believe, getting ready to leave or they were ready, getting ready to do a recast. I'm still not quite sure. And maybe I was going in for Cosette just to have- on backlog in Mm -hmm. case Cosette decided to leave. So I was auditioning for Cosette. I would get feedback. I would be asked to retape. And then the, the, the line went cold or whatever detectives say. (laughs) The trail went cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of put it out of my head until diner closed and I was asked to come in for Fontaine. And I really have to thank Rachel Hoffman again for this because Rachel, if you're listening, because I called her and I said, I don't see myself as this character. I'm 22 years old. I don't do this. I don't, I feel like this is a waste of my time. I don't want to embarrass myself. And she gave me the best advice ever, which is if they didn't think you could do it, they wouldn't be calling you in. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I feel like Every actor kind of is their worst enemy. When we walk into auditions, we think like, oh, they're doing a favor by having me here, or I'm just the 10 o'clock appointment. Um, I feel that way sometimes when I get TV sides. I think, sure, they like saw a headshot of me and just are going to watch my tape. But I really believe this. And I think um, listening to the casting directors that you've interviewed, if you have the audition, there is a reason you are there. So trust it. And so I went in for that audition. And again, I think because I knew I could not be Patty Lapone or- um, Though we all wish we could be. <laughs> Though we all wish we could be. I, no way in no shot in the world was I going to be any of the amazing Fontaines that I had grown up listening to just because I was so much younger in my life experience. And even just the way my voice sounded was just not them. Mm-hmm. I just went in with what I had. Um, and- that audition process was actually pretty short. I think I went in a total of three times, mm-hmm. maybe just twice. Um, and then I found out I got it that winter. Um, and I think there's like a photo on my Instagram in front of the Imperial in the snow. It was very poetic. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so you auditioned for it like maybe two or three times. Yet that yeah. last audition, like that final callback, I imagine like there was a director or a resident director or, do you know what I mean? Like more of a team there. Yes. And yes. when you, I mean, what was that last callback like? I mean, what was it? Was it like, did you leave being like, I, I got it. I know I got it. Or were you, you know? No. And you know what? I have to say, anytime I think, anytime I walk away going like, I nailed that, those are the ones I don't get. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I think when we think we're nailing it is when we're putting something on. And and like, I have to remind myself that, that 
walking away feeling a little unsure or a little uncertain, I think means that you went to a place that you were not in control of. And I think yeah. that's where the magic happens. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that last audition was yes, more people on the team and a camera for Cameron McIntosh, mm -hmm. which that was the first time I'd ever seen a camera in an audition room. I still don't quite know how to deal with them. If yeah. anybody has tips, let me know. <laughs> um, but I remember thinking, not that this is for him, but I think I just thought I have to do what I did. Nobody's giving me any new notes. They're just asking to see it again. And I think because I had been called back, whatever thoughts that I had of, I don't belong here or I'm too X, Y, Z for this were gone. So I felt permission to dig into a place that I personally, as a performer, had never really felt I could occupy. Mm. Um, and I think that is, I think that's a testament A to that casting room and um, that casting office, Tara Rubin and everybody on that team for the revival of Les Mis that they created that space in such mm. a sterile audition room environment. Um, but I remember that they kind of said, you don't have to worry about us being here. We know there's a camera. Don't worry about facing the camera. Like, can you fill the space today? Because I had kind of been doing the audition like I was in an audition room or a dance studio. And I was really being told, we need to know when we put you on that stage alone, can you tell the story to the highest um, drama that Les Mis calls for authentically? To me, that's like the greatest gift an actor gets to do mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's just like, there's no restraints necessary. I think to me, that stuff is easier than putting a camera in front and being like, just natural. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> just be yourself. <laughs> yes, I'm like, it's so hard. They didn't and teach I, me how to be myself in acting school. They did not, they did not. It's so true and it really is by like, I just, I'm so grateful to that show and I hope I get to do it again now having lived a little bit more life because it's my favorite thing about acting. It's like the extremes at all times there's, there's subtlety, yes, but it's always at like the highest stakes. And I just, I loved it. And I felt like um, perhaps the, the fearlessness and the kindness that the room created and the support of that, like I, I've gone into rooms where I've wanted to make a big choice and kind of held back because I thought like, this feels not the place for that, feels too much. I never felt that with the Les Mis team. And mm. especially on that day, I think I thought there's there's nothing to, to lose here. Mm. So I I love that. I love hearing, you know, that story. And I agree. I love Tara Rubin's office. It's, it's uh, incredible. And I know exactly what you mean about like not feeling safe in a space to kind of do a big choice or make something big. And yeah. I just am so happy that that room allowed you to do your work and bring yourself to it. And very cool. So cool. So you're on Broadway playing this iconic character, this leading part. We don't have to go super into this, but how does that even change what you're auditioning for? Do you know, like you have a job ostensibly for nine months or however long it was going to be. So, you know, you're not auditioning for anything else. You know, you're you're having this career high. Did it, did that change anything about auditions? And I guess segue that into like, how did Mean Girls start? And I know that was like a little bit of a longer process. Yeah. I think what happened was obviously for those six months, I wasn't auditioning for a ton just because of contractual things, like mm -hmm. for the first part of my contract. And, you know, I really can't remember. I can't remember how I showed up differently in the room. I think I maybe just felt a little bit more confident. Mm -hmm. um, but is that, sorry to interrupt you. Is that when we met, were you doing Les Mis when we took that Bob Krakauer class? Yes. Yes. I think so. I was oh, either doing it or I had just finished it. Okay. Okay. Um, cool. Gosh. And Bob Krakauer's class just made me realize no matter where you are in your professional career, there's still so much you'll just, you just don't know. 
that you still have to learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah. I remember, I remember, well, we could talk about this, but what happened audition wise after Les Mis was that there were certain things, um, just because I had really been so lucky to get to play a lead on Broadway and to a lot of times people go through um, a, a standby track or an understudy track and then that happens. Mm -hmm. I was really, really fortunate that I went straight to replacing for the incredible Casey Levy, also a role model. And totally. so I think that's sort of what changed that I was now going in for either original works or to replace in other things, as opposed to before I had been going in for um, standbys and understudies and was very happy to do it. That's like some of the hardest tracks mm -hmm. to fill in our career. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's that's what changed the most. And partially because of that, for, for two and a half years or so, I really was only doing, um, I had some concert stuff in New York and some regional gigs at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, which I love. and. I was waiting for the next big thing and got close to a couple things um, that I really, really wanted and didn't get those. I think over the course of four months, there was like six really big rejections, one after the other. <laughs> but you know what? Like, and I'm sure you can see this now and with your friends. Yes. You know, maybe especially from school. I'm super close with my friends from Syracuse. And several of them from my class, I'm just like wildly proud of them and have done so well and everything. But I watched them and it's exactly what you're saying. Like yeah. I watched them get almost, 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 they almost got these jobs. Almost. And then I was literally like, it's going to be two seconds. And before I knew it, they were calling me crying because they like landed this huge thing. And, and it's hard to see in yourself. It's so easy to see in your friends, you know, and be like, it's right around the corner. But for you, like when it's like rejection after rejection, you're like, you know, what am I doing wrong? It's something about yeah. me. You know, me. I, I remember like reaching out to a casting director and being like, I trust you. I come in for you a lot. I'm getting to the end of so much and I'm not getting anything. Like what, What's can happening? you give me any feedback? And she, this wonderful casting director was like, there's nothing there's nothing, there's no notes I have for you. Like you're, you're getting to the end. You can't, can, if you're getting that callback or you're in that final audition, there's nothing you can control. Do you know, like yep. any of those people could play any of those parts. It's just, you know, maybe the casting director dreamed and that other person looks like what they envisioned in their head or, right. you know, you remind them of their ex-girlfriend or do you know what I mean? Like yep. you never know. So it's like, just get, that's what I try to remind myself is even just getting to that callback and getting to the end, there's nothing else you, you know, you really can control um, exactly. after, after it gets there. And that's kind of what we've been hearing from, on the podcast from casting directors. And, and it's helpful to hear from other people and like you. So, okay, sorry to interrupt. Makes yeah. sense that you had some of these rejections before obviously something big came down the road. Before Mean Girls. Yeah. Which I think is always my, uh, I, I totally agree with you because I think when you start piling up your rejections, I believe it's a karma thing, but I also think it's as you start to build a thicker skin, you just have, I really believe it's, you just have nothing to lose anymore when you walk into the audition because you're like, nothing can hurt me now. You yeah. walk in. <laughs> I've already cried and like <laughs> exactly. eaten a kind of ice cream last week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which is really what happened with Mean Girls because I got, um, I had gone in for the lab over the course of a month. It was a lot of auditions for the lab, but of course it was, because this was going to be this huge, huge thing. And it was down to me and one other um, incredible actress who ended up getting the lab. And I did exactly that. I went to my best friend's house and I sat on her couch with her husband and cried because I had thought like, this was the one, or I had just thought like, I had just thought I'm so close. I feel like I can do justice to this character. And I thought something's got to give. I think that's what I was thinking. And um, they did the lab. A couple months went by. I totally forgot about it. I moved on. I was auditioning for things. I think I was maybe about to go out of town to work a summer job. And I got a call that said they wanted me to come back in because they were re essentially just reworking the puzzle piece of what is this puzzle going to look like? We want to shift some things around as we transfer the lab to the out-of-town tryout to Broadway. 
And because I had already been rejected once and because I really had already mourned the loss of Mean Girls, I went back in and I think just that alone allowed me to be a bit more free in the space, um, which, because that's the thing, I didn't change, I didn't get more talented or, or more skilled between the lab audition and the Broadway audition. I think my concept of how you can show up at an audition and still want it changed. I, I think there's a really, I don't love, I think sometimes people give that advice of like, you can't want it so much, which mm -hmm. I just, am, I'm just not cool like that. Like I, I think you have to want it to do good work and to throw yourself into these really vulnerable adrenaline inducing situations. But I think the way you want it can be different where it's, you know, that it will not complete you. You know, if you've already been rejected from it once that you won't die if you get rejected again. Right. Um, so you just want it differently. Um, and that was, that was a really big, a really big difference, I think, between the first round and the second round. And I ultimately got the call after, I think, like eight auditions for Mean Girls the second time around. We went in, I think, like eight times or so. Wait, so you auditioned yeah. a slew of times for the lab that you didn't get. Correct. And then they, and then you went back in like another whole slew of like around eight times Yes. For and what was that for the out of town or was that for that another? Was, that was for the out of town, which was most likely going to be the Broadway cast, right? Um, right. Which it fully became. There was no changeover. Um, and I was going into town because they were reworking the puzzle. Which again, I think people sometimes think when labs are recast, are like, oh, I didn't like that person. It just means that the puzzle piece needed to be reworked because the show was being reworked. Mm -hmm. And I went in to read with um, a couple different errands i believe and i think they hadn't cast gretchen yet because i think krista rodriguez had been in the lab and she ended up not i believe she was working on a tv projects so she couldn't do mean girls mm -hmm. and that changed that changes everything one person changes so much mm -hmm. so i went back in i think eight times and the last time was that 10 a.m. on a Friday, which I know doesn't sound that early, but it's very early. <laughs> no, that's, any any audition before noon, I know is going to yes. take like a special mindset. A special mindset. And I was like, why are they doing this to me? 10 a.m. on a Friday. Nobody else was there. It was just, hi, Dennis. Oh, it was just, this is my dog. Um, it was just Casey Nicola and Casey Hushin, I believe the associate director. And we sang bossed up and wildlife which were the audition songs at the time once and that was it and they're like great thanks so much erica nobody else was in the waiting room i just thought what was that wow. they just want to make sure i still to this day have to ask them what was up with that final 10 a.m yeah <laughs> audition oh. call yeah i mean you know like it's a lot of money a lot of expectation it's you know it's a massive company, you know, that you are aiding to, you know, lead. And really it's, it's Katie's story, you know? So it's yes. like, I get it that it's like such a big thing that they want to be sure, but couldn't they have been sure after like the third time? <laughs> after you know? the third time, couldn't have been sure. It is funny though. Now I honestly haven't really put it together until now. The last piece of notes that I got from Casey was the same thing that I got in Les Mis, which was, can you fill the space for me? Hmm. which I think is such, I'm not surprised that that was the note that I got right before I got either of these Broadway jobs, because I think my favorite part of going in for a live audition is connecting with the reader and making it this really intimate experience with the reader. Cause I just love having other eyes there mm -hmm. to look at. And I think that is a thing that helps me in auditions, but I think when you get to the end, they need to see, can we translate that to a massive space? And both times that was like my final note. And at 10 a.m. on that morning, that was just what I was given. They were like, can you just be center stage and do these like you're in the theater? And it changes, but it feels, you never really feel comfortable doing that in an audition room, or at least yeah. I 
didn't. I have to sometimes be told. <laughs> yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Isn't it so fun to like hear these stories of, I guess I'm thinking about like Betty Buckley and these like legends yes, that we so. love. You know, you hear, I don't know if you ever heard the story of Betty Buckley auditioning for Cats, but like, <gasps> you know, all these people, it's an, it's an unbelievable story if you've never heard it, but um, you know, they're on these, they auditioned on Broadway stages. On the stages. You know, like the dancers auditioned on stages, the like actors auditioned on stages. And I'm like, <sighs> I get it, you know. I get so it. It's like, it's funny. I guess it's, there's so much like contractual and equity and like, there's not really any dark Broadway theaters these days, which is really wonderful. You know, I guess exactly. to use for auditions, but it's like, made sense that they used to do that. Or you watch like every little step, the chorus line documentary, and they're like dancing at the theater. And it's like, well, I'm... you know, do you want to see me then? Then do know. that. I know right. I miss that. There's like something about theater in the 70s, 80s and 90s that I just relish in. And yeah. I, I think I was watching Fosse and Verdon and I thought, I kind of oh, love that. Fosse and I know, it's so good. And it's just this era of musical theater that to me is some of the best and just still like gritty and dirty and wonderful. <laughs> totally, totally. The thing that I'm glad we missed was the whole like needing to like go to your agent's office to read yes. the script or like get the, get this, pick up the sides from them. And, yes. you know, like there are stories that I've heard of people being like, oh yeah, like the script would be like in individual pages. And once you finished a page, you'd hand it to the actor that was like auditioning after you and you'd be lined up in a hallway reading it. And then two days later, you had to go into an audition. He's just the before, insane. the before, the before time. So wow, I'm happy for my little insane. PDF on my computer. I have in my <laughs> yeah, pocket. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so just like walk me through quickly, um, getting that phone call, like how long from that Friday until Stuart Talent called you? Or was it your, um, or your manager or uh, whoever called I you? I had to wait through the whole weekend because I think somebody was on a flight. I think Casey was getting on a flight to London to go check in on Book of Mormon there, I think, I believe. So I had to wait through the weekend. And on Monday, I had an audition for something else, actually, at the Chelsea office. And I kind of love this. And I'm going to throw the wonderful Bernie Chelsea under the bus because he almost blew it and told me before my agent told me because I walked into that audition on Monday. I really, I think had kind of just been like in a zombie like state all weekend because I was just waiting, hopefully to get a call. And I walked into that audition and was signing in and he came out and said, what are you doing here? And I looked at him and I was like, oh, I, I have an appointment today. He goes, no, I, I heard it went really well for you the other day. And then I think he saw it register on my face that I had not been told yet. And he goes, well, don't worry, don't worry. You'll come in in like 20 minutes. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, what did he just say to me? And of course I can't ask for, I don't, I don't even want, I don't want to bother and ask for clarification. So <laughs> it's also Bernie Kelsey. Do you know what I mean? Oh, right. I'm like, wait, can you come out here and explain that? I'm still like, like, I still can't. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm confident at this point, but not confident enough to do that. But um, I, I went in and did my audition and don't really remember that. And then I walked outside and got a call, like literally right when I walked outside, I think because he had mm. said, you got to tell her, um, maybe. And I got a call and I was outside Lincoln Center actually when I got it. Oh, and so I, which is just like literally, like it couldn't have happened in a more magical way because a, a couple things. One, I had an audition that morning, which just was a reminder to me that like, the world always moves on. There's always something next. Mm -hmm. When you don't get something, there's always a next thing, which mm -hmm. like, even though I was waiting for something I really, really wanted, I had another audition. That's just the way yeah. it goes. I think it helps keep it in perspective of there's always another project that, that you could be right for if you don't get the thing that you wanted. And also Lincoln Center is my favorite place in the world. And I got the call and then I walked into the park and I didn't call anyone in my family for like an hour and a half mm. because I just think I knew that the thing I had so been hoping for was maybe going to happen with this show, which was just to be a part of Broadway in a way where I felt like a part of the community. Like that's the goal. I don't think I was ever like, I want to be famous. I just wanted to be part of the Broadway community and mm -hmm respected within it as a member and so i walked through central park and kind of just like took it in for myself and then i called my mom <laughs> i love that i love yeah. that yeah 
I'm Ugh. barely into those poetic moments. I've had many non-poetic moments in New York crying <laughs> on the subway, but like that's maybe for the after hours podcast. Another, this another is meant time. to inspire the young people listening. <laughs> totally, totally. That's so incredible. So it's so amazing. I mean, those phone calls are, you know, we hear so many no's. So to hear those yeah. yeses and to hear it in like such an incredible way after you had been told no before is so wonderful and just such a good lesson to learn and to remember. And, you yeah. know, it's never over or things may come back around. And oh my gosh, you know. it is never over. I just, yeah, it is never over until. Yeah. Ever. Ever. I was like, never over to what? But it just, yeah, I, I think it's the idea of a rejection is usually just not now, but later in some capacity. Mm -hmm. If not for that project, maybe that director still really liked you and will come back around for another. Exactly. Time. Totally. Or like you said, kind of in the beginning, you know, your first year, you're always auditioning for every casting director or every producer yeah. that sees you. So it's always a meeting. Exactly. Erica, I'm so excited about the residency that I just saw you're doing, especially because like I'm going to be fully vaccinated and I want to come and I'm going to be in the front row. And I'm really excited about it because to even just think about hearing a concert, I mean, um, I've gone to like some outdoor, socially distant, very safe stuff, but to be able to like sit indoors at like a concert, you know, just sounds like a dream. Can you just like chat like a little bit about what that's yes. going to be like, what that concert's going to be like. And ah. it must be so cool to be kind of create, being so creative um, with something right now during this time. Oh my God. I didn't realize how much I missed it. And I really, you know, I came to this concert. I've seen so many cabaret shows and I've always thought I don't have anything to say yet or nobody needs to hear from me because I'm, you know, I just didn't know if I was ready to like occupy space that way as an artist or even felt comfortable not playing a character on stage. TBD if I will be comfortable. Um, but I just thought there the opportunity to get to be on a stage, one of the first ones to reopen after this year, I just thought this will be a historic event, no matter how um no matter how it goes, no matter if I get 10 people there, if it's like this big hit or if it's just sort of like my mom and my sisters and all my friends, um, which is special in its own way. So I, I'm just really excited. And I think the, the thing that I have realized during this time, especially as I've been self-taping and, and working on other projects that are important to me with uh, voter registration and getting people engaged in the political system. Mm -hmm. What I have realized is that singing is still like my absolute favorite thing to do. And I think sometimes as musical theater actors, especially as we are getting to see this beautiful crossover happening between musical theater and TV film. I was actually talking to Ashley Park about this because she sings obviously in Emily in Paris. Mm -hmm. And she said something that really struck me and reminded me like there's no shame in in loving to sing and being a musical theater artist and also wanting to pursue other things but it doesn't mean you have to hide that first love or shove it away in order to pursue other things um mm -hmm. and i think this year i've missed singing so so much um that i just thought I want to be on a stage and share some of my favorite songs and and what it's meant this year to not be an actor, but what it's meant to be a bunch of other things that um, I haven't really given time to. So I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited about it too. I really can't wait. Um, and I'm the two people working on it with me, Mark Tuminelli and Evan Zavada, have known me for upwards of a decade now. So that feels really cozy and fun that I'm yeah. like, because uh, I, I just feel in, I hope when people come, not only will they just be excited to see live music again, but I'm also hopeful that it will feel very communal and it will feel very much like the intimate setting that I would like to have for if I get to do these shows in the future, um, mm -hmm. which I'm sure it will, because I think we have to have a 30% capacity. So <laughs> yeah, um, it'll be it'll be cozy, but I, I just can't wait. And I really like that space. So I'm excited. So cool. Well, we are excited. I'm going to put like the link and all the info about the concert, like in the show <gasps> oh notes and like God. on the website and stuff so people can check it out. I'm I got to go get my that. ticket. I hope it's not sold yes. out, but no, I'm really so excited. excited. And it's live. I think people sometimes thought it was like a streamed event, but it's live in the flesh, in the blood. Um, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. And remember, you know, for a lot of us, it's going to be our first like sitting down in a, you know, inside and seeing something. And so it's going to be really special and it sounds like a great concept and I I love it. I think it's going to be really, really cool. So thank you. I'm really, I'm really pumped meeting with my voice teacher because certain notes aren't there anymore, but they'll they'll be back. They'll be back. They'll be back. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Erica, thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much of this. I just feel like the more we can hear the reality of what it's like for someone that has found so much success as you have and, and found it early, but also that there are so many parts to this business and there are so many things and there are so many no's. And, um, you know, I just help, I think it can help reframe some of our thinking and, yes. and help us along the way. Cause like you said, the big thing that switched for you, that's been helpful is, was your mindset, you know, between auditions. Yeah. It wasn't really about getting more talented or hitting certain notes. It was just about not putting so much pressure on yourself or letting yourself yeah. be free or, you know, so it's, um, wildly wildly important so thank you for being part of the 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 podcast thanks for having me and thanks for letting me i I actually don't think i've sat down and really thought i feel like i'm usually just asked about mean girls so it's really interesting to connect that those first initial years in new york to i think where i've gotten to end up because i think Mm -hmm. those early years and that first year and a half of rejections and learning and pretending to be other people was so instrumental in figuring out how can I actually show up in a room and and do the work that I want to do. You know, that thing with your voice memo note that you did during beautiful. (laughs) I've done that before for sure. How wild is it that there are actors that brought, took out their voice memo note during mean girls to voice memo you. I bet it's happened. And of course, like I'm not, and I'm not talking for bootleg purposes. I'm talking for like, I'm going in for Katie in the tour and like, I need to be Erica Henningsen, you know? And it's like, you, no one else can be you, but you, you know? So it's it's funny to think about it on the other side. On the other side. Yeah. And it truly is. Sometimes I think it is a thing you just have to work through because having been those actors, you and I, bringing out our voice memo and then you just find out at a certain point like we don't we don't need another jesse though i mean i I would personally love that (laughs) (laughs) she's a queen yeah yeah she's a true queen but um yeah i think it comes when we kind of let go of an idea of what it's supposed to be and just do what we want to bring to it love it love it inspiration goals (laughs) thank you erica thank you so much it was so good to see you For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown.